0: So we're in Psalms 141. We're going to go verse by verse, because I like going verse by verse. Psalms 141 is an an individual lament. And when I say lament, think grief, think sorrow. It's an individual lament psalm that was often associated with the evening sacrifices that would take place at the temple. And they'd have... And there would be prayers offered to God in times of distress in which an individual or or a community would would plead. They they plead with God for deliverance, for for help. And like the structure of many lament psalms, what we'll see in Psalms 41 includes an introductory cry. So you'll notice that in a moment. You'll see the introductory cry, an invocation to God, the lament, the, the description followed by a, a confession of trust and an imprecation. And if you like, like, one-word sermons, um, compromise. If, if I could give you, like, one word, like, break this down, bottom line up front, this message, Psalms 141, is about compromise. It is the theme. More specifically, it's a prayer That is being prayed to God for protection against compromise. And so we will begin in verse one. Oh Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my, my voice when I call to you. Notice the, the tone. There of the psalmist. It is, it's desperate. There is this intensity that is reflected in in, in verse one, this urging of, of God to God, come pay attention to me right now. God, I need you right now. God, please hurry up. Don't delay. Come now. I need you, Lord. Don't miss that. That's the tone. That's the tone of verse one. And then as quickly as it comes, It leaves we go right to verse 2 and he says let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice and so we get to verse 2 and it may seem at first to undo the stress and urgency in verse 1 like you read verse 2 and you wonder like is there really a problem Verse 1, we, we see the psalmist almost as this hurting child urging Yahweh, urging the Lord to pay immediate attention. And then verse 2, he's like, yo, I'll, uh, I'll be a small group tonight. It's like, wait, okay, is there a problem? Like, is it really that big of a deal? Is there this emergency situation that's going on? Because verse 2 seemingly undoes the stress put on verse 1. Now, just spoiler alert, there is a very urgent situation, Okay. Little spoiler, we'll get to that in a second. And so, I want to, just for verse 2 at least, I want to work backwards through the text. And so, he makes this reference to evening, evening sacrifice. So, evening sacrifice, this word could be used in a couple different ways. In a narrow sense, it would be a grain offering. Now, remember, this is a very agricultural sort of society. So, that's as good as coin, okay? That's as good as swiping your credit card, it could be in a narrow sense referring to the grain offering but in a broader sense it could refer to an animal sacrifice that's brought in an agricultural in an agricultural society like this whether it's grain whether it's animal sacrifice this is this is coin so we see a very uh, the aspect of giving here and then he says at the beginning of verse 2 let my prayer be counted as incense before you as this fragrant Aroma pleasing, coming up through like our nostrils, and it's just okay. That, oh, that smells good. Whatever that is, that's the picture here. Don't miss that. It's the picture of either, if it's in the broader sense, if it's an animal sacrifice, the, the smoke coming off the altar, almost like this, this wonderful, like barbecue-esque, char grilled, just, just very pleasant smell. But if it is in the narrow sense, in fact, that that grain offering, well, grain offerings would be accompanied with fragrant spices, and so the incense coming up to Yahweh, the incense coming to God, would be just that. Accompanied with the grain. And so there's the, the picture here. And, and then he says, and don't miss this. He says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the evening and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, lest we misunderstand what the psalmist is saying, because you easily can, there is no word where it says let my prayer be counted as incense they're apparently right here there's no word for for with and so as might not be the the best translation lest we lose the author's meaning because it could seem like hey um so instead of giving to you god just let my prayer be counted as the giving to you but that would like never happen ever um, prayers would never be a substitute for for sacrifices unless for some reason that you were unable to make a sacrifice. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is this. Prayer is important. Prayer is great. I often ask people, I, you know, I'll ask them, how are you doing spiritually? I say, man, I've been, I've been praying a lot. Well, what about other aspects of, of your life? Giving, service, participation. Well, I haven't really had time to to gather with the saints corporately. But, man, I've been praying a lot, spending time reading the Word. Prayer is great, but but prayer is never a substitute for other aspects of worship or obedience to God, like giving or fellowship or participation or serving. But that's not the main point of verse 2. The main point is this. Maybe some of you can relate. This last week has been a little bit of crazy. Last month's been kind of crazy. Psalmist has got a little bit of crazy going on right now. And yet, he's praying. He's on his knees before the creator of the universe. He's worshiping God. That's cool. It reminds me of what Martin Luther says. Luther, and of course this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, in case you weren't counting down the days every day like an advent calendar, Luther would say, I I try to pray one to two hours a day, but on days when I get really busy, I pray three. And you're like, wait a second, I I I preached this morning to a bunch of soldiers and they're like, that doesn't sound right. Um... Because that's not how we typically think, right? When life gets crazy, the first thing that goes is some aspect or element of worship with God. Things get tight financially, first thing to go, our giving. Well, we, we got kind of behind on our homework, so the only time we have to, to read is going to be our textbook. So Bible reading, back burner. Well, I, I still got to, you know, catch up on this... Uh, new season of whatever on Netflix, Hulu, whatever is your your platform for watching. So, well, I'll have to spend time in prayer later. It's always interesting. Those are the first things to go. And and yet for Luther and for the psalmist, it's not. The psalmist is in the midst of craziness. You haven't even seen it yet. Okay? For for as crazy or as busy as you are, this will be good in a second. Just hang on. He makes time to worship God. That's not typically how we respond at all. That's usually not the priority, which is why when we see verse two kind of inserted there, it almost seems to disrupt the urgency and stress put on verse one. Like, is he really like in trouble? Is this, is this really an emergency? It is. More on that in a moment. We get to this issue of compromise now. Verse three. Let's look at that. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Perhaps you've been and experienced moments in which you hastily have said something that you shouldn't have said in a moment of whatever it may be. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about here. When he says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, keep a watch over the door of my lips. Rather, the psalmist, he has in mind something dark. He has in mind something devious, deceptive, something plotting, something premeditated, something quite evil. This isn't oh I stubbed my toe and I, I said a bad word that he's asking protection from, but this is speech that's used in such a way to further the most evil of things and ideas. And there is a real struggle that he is dealing with, both internally and externally. He's praying for protection. God, set a guard, a oh Lord over my mouth. Why is he, why does he need to? To pray that. Because there's a temptation for him to exercise his speech in such a way that would not honor God. Such a way that he would join in with these other people in the story. There's an internal battle that he has. That's why he's praying. Set a guard over my mouth. We go to verse 4. He says, Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with the wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity who work sin and let me not eat of their delicacies we see this external pressure to join in with these these people who work iniquity you know think about that right i go i work as an army chaplain and the picture is these people who work iniquity it's very evil it's very dark and he's struggling no doubt they're saying oh come on it'll be fine join us there's an invitation it seems on verse 4 there is a, a tugging of his desires and he is struggling will he give in will he compromise what is he to do So the psalmist he prays. He prays to God in verse 4, "Do not let my heart incline to any evil." God, God, I need your help. He prays that Yahweh, he prays that God would persuade him to act in a way in which he wouldn't otherwise act unless God shows up and delivers him. That's that's what he does. These are powerful desires that he has. Now, this can be challenging because if you don't see the implied, at the very least, paradox, well, then I'll point it out to you because I saw it right away. There is two competing ideas, which I don't think are a problem, where we see the sovereignty of God over decisions and human responsibility colliding together in this verse in which, is the psalmist responsible for his actions? Yes. Like, if that wasn't an issue, he wouldn't be praying in the first place, and yet he's praying that God would persuade him to act in such a way that he wouldn't otherwise act. So he's praying, God, don't, don't let my heart incline. Like, we're, we're not naturally good people. You've heard the illustration many times. Little children, they, they don't need much schooling on rebellion. They do just fine on their own and there's this inclination of his heart to join in and he's battling in prayer God help me and yet there seems according to the psalmist no inconsistency or no contradictions in terms where he can pray God help me and yet he's still responsible of his actions because you might draw the inference from this text well he prays to God Not to sin. So therefore, if he sins, well, he's off the hook, because God didn't answer his prayer, so it's not his fault. He's absolved from responsibility. But that's not what the text says. That's a logical inference that we can make, because we have these two competing systems, human responsibility and the sovereignty of God, even over our actions. And But the psalmist doesn't have a problem with it. He prays that God would persuade him otherwise to act in a, in a more noble way, and, and yet, if he so chooses to engage in that sin, in that rebellion, he will be held accountable. You say, I don't know about that. You take something as simple as, or not simple as, the doctrine of the Trinity. If I pose the question, is God one or three, I'm sure by unanimous voice you'd say, Yes. Right? Protestants, I had some Catholics in my service today, they would agree to that. You'd say, that can't be. But if you were brought up in the church, you'd know that that's a truth that we stake just about everything on. He is one, and he is three, and yet we see here an example of this, right? Of God sovereignly engaging in the morality and actions and choices and decisions of the psalmist, and yet somehow, and this is a little bit of a mystery. He's still held accountable and responsible. He has no contradiction. He doesn't, there's no contradiction here. If there was, he wouldn't be praying it in the first place. If God could not do the thing he asked him to do, I don't think he'd be praying it in the first place. And yet the psalmist is not content simply with fighting passively. And, and this is what I mean, fighting passively, because a lot of people fight this way when it comes to issues of compromise, when it comes to moments where they're tempted in their life to compromise, to give in. They say, God, please help me not to make poor decisions as I go over to my girlfriend's off-campus apartment at 11.45 tonight to, to watch a, a movie with her and then walk into it. Like, as if that ever ends with some great discussion regarding cinematography, right? Like, that's just foolish. It'd be like the guy saying, Lord, help me, help me not to lust as I go to the strip club tonight. Wait, what? God, help me not to give in tonight as I go to this party and hang out with people that I know I shouldn't hang out with where there's gonna be drugs and alcohol and people with loose morals. Help me not to give in to temptation as I go to those places. Well, that's just foolish. Like, that person's an idiot. The psalmist is not an idiot. The psalmist doesn't simply fight passively. The psalmist also is committed to not putting himself in the compromising situations in the first place. And the psalmist is also committed to having people in his life who help him. Notice the next verse. Verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That's oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Don't miss that. The psalmist makes a commitment to have nothing to do with these people. He makes a commitment to have nothing to do with these people. Many of us, we love to get as close to the line as we can. The psalmist makes a commitment to have nothing to do with these individuals who work iniquity. He makes a commitment to decline in enjoying these delicacies that were mentioned at the end of verse four. Why are they delicacies? Because they're 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 delightful, they're they're delicious, whatever this, this is. And so I think of, for example, Hebrews twelve, eleven. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it let a righteous man strike me it's a kindness let him rebuke me it's oil for my head let my head not refuse it why might he say let not my head refuse it because it's uncomfortable the picture getting smacked in the back of the head that's not fun to get smacked in the back of the head but he knows that it's beneficial he knows that this is what he needs let a righteous man strike me it's a kindness let him rebuke me it's oil for my head but it's not fun to be rebuked it's not fun when people say hey what you're doing is wrong you're sinning you're in rebellion against the king you need to stop that's not fun and oftentimes, we get very defensive when people bring up things to us. We don't want to be told that we're wrong. We want to think that we're much better than what we actually really are. That's pride. That's a whole nother sermon. But that's, that's the issue here. The psalmist is committed in battling the temptations of compromise. He is battling in prayer. He is battling in his commitment to avoid these dangerous areas. So many people aren't committed to avoiding these, uh, avoiding these dangerous, deathly areas. They, they think because, well, I can handle it. Maybe you've had those conversations. Listen, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. You know, you're talking to your friend. You love your friend. You don't want them to make the same mistake they made two weeks ago. And they're like, no, no, I got this. As if somehow their willpower has increased by 500% in the last week or something. And it's just dangerous. I used the illustration today with the soldiers I was preaching to. Imagine telling, like, your squad, hey, uh, I'm going to go just take a walk in downtown Fallujah. I'll just be back later. Like, that's just dangerous. This is dangerous. And yet, so many people rely upon their own strength. Well, I got this. And then I get this knock on my door. True story. Years ago. And this guy comes. He's like, Joe, me and my girlfriend, we, we crossed lines. We went all the way. And I'm like, well, what, what was, what happened? What was the situation? He's like, well, her parents were out of town. Keep going. And, uh, we thought we'd just hang out at her house over the weekend. Okay. And I have no idea how this happened. Really. Hmm, okay. But we fight like that. We're, we're so stupid. We think like we're we're Superman sometimes. And it's prideful. And we don't realize the enemy that we're up against. We don't. We think, ah, it's just some little red-horned creature. And we don't realize the enemy that we're up against. And we are fools. It's not always something that's comfortable. It's not. But it is always something that's beneficial. It's not always something that's comfortable, but it is always something that's beneficial. Let a righteous man strike me. It's not fun to be smacked up against the back of the head, but sometimes, sometimes that's exactly what we need. And so, it's not always something that's comfortable, but it is always something that's beneficial. We get to the end of verse five and we see the first glimpse of an imprecation, an imprecatory prayer. Some of you never heard of imprecations or imprecatory prayers. It sounds like something that belongs more in Harry Potter than in the pages of this book. Let my Excuse me, he says this, at the end of verse 5, he says, Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. Then in verse 6, when their judges are thrown over the cliff, there is some imagery, don't miss that, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. Imprecatory prayers, imprecations. You say, can I pray those? yeah biblical yeah tell me a little bit more okay psalms 137 9 here's another example of a imprecatory prayer it's a little pg-13 it's in the bible so i'll I'll read it some of you are like "Whoa, this is gonna be great psalms 137 9 blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks." There's a picture of taking children and infants and smashing them to pieces on the rocks. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. These are examples of imprecations, imprecatory prayers, and so, lest you miss, okay, let's get back to the text, Psalms 141. Um, the, the imprecation he prays is, God stop and oppose their evil plans may their leaders be thrown over the cliffs that's the text See say are there's new testament examples oh absolutely there are here's one that comes to mind galatians one this is what paul says he says anyone who preaches a different gospel let him be accursed okay you 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 tell people and mislead people like a used car salesman about things concerning Jesus Christ. You be accursed. That's serious. Notice imprecations are serious in context, okay? They're biblical, there's examples, old, New Testament, but but it's not prayed flippantly. I said, yes, they're biblical, yes, you can pray them, but it's not like you know, you're going through the drive through a Chick-fil-a, you open it up, you said, No pickles, there's pickles. God made the cliff, right? Probably not the same context or situation that the psalmist had in mind, or even like-minded. Where you you ask that the girl out, and she shoots you down. Lord, may she be thrown over the cliff. Along with all the other girls that shot me down. Probably 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 not the same situation or or context that we're dealing with here. They're biblical. I think there are times to pray them. There's times I've prayed them. So what is going on? All right, this is what's going on. This is why he's praying this. This is why he's saying the things that he's saying. He says, verse 7, As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones... Our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol there is a, a very bleak situation that we see now in verse 7 what we saw in verse 1 this urgency God hasten to me God listen to me God pay attention to me is now really revealed in full here in verse 7 it's a matter of life and death that's what we're dealing with it's a matter of of life and death. There's a very bleak view, and the psalmist pictures this as a borrowing from the agricultural society they live in of someone pl- plowing a field. So they're, they're they're plowing, they're they're tearing up the ground. Okay, it's being torn up so that you can sow seed. You plowed, you sowed seed, and, and, but in, instead of sowing seed, the picture is of the psalmist, he says, our and, and the community that perhaps he represents, they're, s- they're they're throwing instead of the seed, they're throwing their chopped up pieces of their own body into the fields. Their their bones are are being scattered. It's a it's a very graphic scene. It's a very think about the psalmist. I mean, I don't care how crazy a week you had. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are people trying to kill you right now. Maybe you're like a sea a but I'm going on a limb here. I'm thinking maybe not. It's crazy a week that you've had. People are trying not just to kill the psalmist, but to mutilate him. It's a really graphic picture. It's such a graphic picture. And you begin to understand the urgency that was first placed in verse 1. And then he makes this reference at the mouth of Sheol. We talked about Sheol, I think, last week, the week before. If you've got an NIV, it'll probably say the grave. Um, the ESV just leaves it at Sheol. That's the, the Hebrew word for it. Sheol is the place in the Old Testament where both the righteous and the wicked would go when they would die. They both go there. Old Testament times, pre-Messiah, uh, if you die, you go to Sheol. Okay, whether you love God or you don't, the wicked and the righteous go to Sheol. Dr. Yates, my Old Testament professor, my Psalms professor for this class, um, he said the distinction, though, is the wicked go to Sheol before their time. And as we discussed more last week, um, there seems to be in Shaol uh, different compartments—one for the wicked, one for the, the righteous. But that's the picture he sees. It's a matter of life and death, and, and, and he uses the imagery of the mouth of Shaol. And most commentators believe that he's what he's doing here in referencing to the mouth of Shaol. So, so he's got his mutilated body parts, just throwing them out like seed into the field. And it says at the mouth of Shaol. Most commentators believe that what he's saying here is he's borrowing from Canaanite mythology. Mot, that's M-O-T. Mott is the Canaanite god of death and the underworld. Chief adversary to Baal, the god of the storm, but Mot, M-O-T. Mot is the god of death and the underworld. And, and Mott, within Canaanite mythology, he, he was pictured as having these monstrous jaws. It swallows victim's whole. His mouth was described as stretching from earth into the heavens. The, the picture is this. The picture is this life and death situation that the psalmist is finding himself in, perhaps as a result of not compromising. The text doesn't tell us. Could be. Not, not joining in with the, the external pressure that he's feeling, described in verse 4. Perhaps these are the same people now. Well, because he didn't play ball with them, they want him dead. We don't know. But lest you you miss it, the psalmist enemies, they're not content with just killing him. They want to mutilate him. They want him torn to pieces. They are more cruel, more savage, more barbarian-like than any type of person or situation that he's ever found himself in. So, he says this in verse 8. My eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. God, people are trying to kill me. I need you to protect me. Verse 10, another and imprecation, precatory prayer, let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. So here's the situation of compromise. There's a temptation for him to compromise. He prays, He battles. He makes a commitment not to. He he prays against his enemies quite graphically, as as we see, and then he's saying, "I'm keeping my eyes on you, God." But you come to this and you say, "Well, why do people compromise in the first place?" Because that really comes back to the question: Why do we compromise in the first place? And the answer is: Well, we compromise in the first place because we want to. We we compromise in order to accommodate our own desires. That's why we compromise. We compromise in order to accommodate our own desires. So what are we to do? In those moments. When we are desiring things, or people, whatever, that we should not be, that are wrong. What do we do? You fight. How? Like the psalmist. How does he fight again? Verse four. Do not let my heart incline to any des- evil desire. Do not let my heart incline to any, any evil. To busy myself with wicked deeds. W- w- what do you do? You, you battle. You fight like that. You, you pray. God, my heart right now, my heart, God, is so prone to wander. My heart is, it's not desiring you, it's not inclined to you right now. It's inclined to this thing, or doing this thing, or saying this thing, or thinking this thing. God, that's what my inclination is, God. God, you've got to help me. You've got to give me different desires. See, in those moments when we desire sinful things and we're tempted to compromise, we don't need just more willpower. I grew up in church and they said, well, just just don't sin. Not a bad answer just an incomplete answer what do you do when you are having evil desires to do things you should not do what you really need is you need a more powerful desire a more glorious desire a more beautiful desire a more satisfying desire and so i'm praying god God, my heart is inclined to do these things right now and I don't want to do those things but part of me does want to do those things and I need you, God, to incline my heart away. Incline my heart back to you, God. You pray as he does in Psalms 86. God, unite my heart to fear your name because right now my heart is fragmented. It's going a million different directions and not not one of them are towards you. Incline my heart toward you. God, help me keep my eyes on you. As he says in verse 8, My eyes are towards you, O God, my Lord. And you, I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Why? Why? Because there's nobody else that can help him right now. Okay? He's not, I'll just do this on my own. I'll pull myself up on my bootstraps, right? It's first and goal. We're on the one. We'll just ram it in. We'll make it happen. I've got enough willpower. I've got enough self-control. No, you don't. If you think that, you're probably already too far gone. You're, you're buying into the lies of the devil. And so you battle the way the psalmist battles. You pray. And you exercise wisdom not to enter into those compromising situations in the first place in which you will inevitably compromise right roommate leaves door is shut right see really good you know you pull out your cell phone start you know looking at things you shouldn't look at i mean you can think of whatever example you need to, to to satisfy this illustration but you also commit you don't you don't fight passively so many people fight passively so many people say all right god Please don't help me not to give in to this temptation. And then they just walk right through the door like an absolute idiot. I I see it just happens all the time. Well, I prayed. (laughs) Yeah, but you didn't exercise like a a lick of wisdom. You want to fight compromise? You need to see Jesus as... Is just better. Mm-hmm. Right? Not, I just just won't do it. Just my own willpower. You, know, you need to see Jesus as better, as, as more desirable than the thing that you want to compromise in or, or with. And the truth is, is when we want to compromise, when we want to give in to temptation, we're very hesitant to affirm truths. That contradict that sin. When you want to compromise, when you want to give in, we're very hesitant to affirm truths that contradict that sin. So um, if it's sexual sin, we want to give in to that. I'm probably not thinking of all the Bible verses that say to do the opposite or to say that that's wrong or that's rebellion. Probably not thinking those Bible verses because when we want to give in, when we want to sin, when we want to compromise, we're very hesitant to affirm truths that contradict the thing that we want to do. Right? We're being pulled away by, by these desires. And that's where I think the righteous man comes in in verse 5. What's his role? The role of the righteous man? The role of the righteous man is smacking you up beside the back of the head. Everyone's like, I want to be the righteous man. Nobody wants one. Everybody wants to be the righteous man. Nobody wants one because it's not fun. It's not fun to be told you're in rebellion against the king. What you're doing is wrong. But that's what we need. Because in those moments when we want to compromise, we don't want to affirm things that contradict what we're doing. But that's where the righteous man says, you're in rebellion against the king you know what the bible says you know what this verse says you know this so we need the righteous man in our life to speak some just common sense in those moments where it just seems like we're brain dead people say well not that big of a deal people just love justifying things i've been just as guilty of that guys People, uh, they love just justifying things. Or, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not, well, I'm only kind of bending the rules. Well, I'm only breaking some of the rules. I'm only breaking some of them. When it comes to sin, when it comes to compromise, we, we like to just downplay it by the the words we choose to use describing it. But sin is more than bending or breaking the rules. Sin is picking teams. You want you want team Jesus or you want team Satan? eh, That's what it is. We don't like to say it because then it makes us more accountable and we have a harder time justifying things. But that's what it is. Sin is more than bending or breaking the rules. Oh, I only sort of gave in to compromise. Sin is more than that. Sin is picking teams. You want to be on team Jesus or you want to be on team Satan, your enemy and adversary who is a liar and has always been a liar. What will we do well hopefully we'll battle and fight and keep on fighting like the psalmist God we love you you are a good God you are a great God and I thank you for this story thank you for Psalms 141 Help us, God, to fight. Help us to fight even when we feel like we can't fight anymore. I pray that, yes, that we would be righteous men in the lives of our brothers and sisters, but I also pray that we would be willing to receive from the righteous men. That's that's the hard part. Cause I always like to hear that and be told that what we're doing isn't okay. Help us, make us humble in those moments. Make us willing to receive correction and rebuke, even though it's not fun. God, protect us against compromise. God, protect us, help us to make a commitment to you to avoid those areas of compromise which are battling for our desires and our affections. We cannot do this on our own. We need the righteous man. But more than anything, God, we need you. Help us not to be foolish. Protect us from our enemies. Protect us from sin. Protect us from the devil. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.